you can lament, you can, you know, spout off all of your complaints, you can really, really grieve. And then I think we do have some responsibility, even if it's just the tiniest glimmer of and yet. The darkness is so great, and yet, um, I, I will praise you. I will, I will cling to the belief that the author of the story is good. Welcome to the newest episode of the In All Things podcast, where we host conversations with diverse voices about living creatively in God's created world. My name is Justin Ariel Bailey, and I teach at Dort University, which is home to the Andreas Center, the sponsor of this podcast. On this episode of the podcast, we are talking with singer, songwriter, author, beekeeper, Andrew Peterson, about his new book, The God of the Garden. This is a special episode of the podcast, the first one in which we were able to conduct the interview in person rather than over Zoom. Being in the same room made for an energetic and sometimes moving conversation about creativity, working with words, and working with weeds. Thanks again for tuning in. I teach a class on aesthetics, which revolves around three topics. Imagination, beauty, and the arts. Since the class fulfills an upper-level requirement, it quickly fills up with students from a wide variety of disciplines. There are students studying art and graphic design, but there are more students studying computer science, business administration, and exercise science. This confluence of artists and non-artists often produces a feeling of inferiority in the latter group, the non-artists. They have this sense that they're not supposed to be there. The common refrain I hear from them is, I'm not really creative. It always bothers me, even if I know what they mean. What they mean is that they are not skilled in the fine arts. They can't draw or paint. They don't write poetry or songs. They don't plan to make their living doing artsy things. And I get that. There are some people who are incredibly gifted and practiced in the arts of imagining and making. Specialists of nuanced elusivity. Surely, this special group of people often misunderstood and underappreciated, are worthy of special honor and appreciation. But it also strikes me that many of these non-artistic students put a lot of attention and intention into the way they dress, the quality of their friendships, and the work they plan to do. Some are practiced athletes. Others can build cabinets and fix cars. Many of them will get married and have families, literally making many human beings. And yet these students mistakenly believe that they are not creative. Christians believe that humans are made in the image of God the Creator. To be creative. To take the good start we've been given and make it even better. In a fallen world, we often go astray and use our creativity for selfish, even evil purposes. But the right to make, as Tolkien puts it, has not decayed we make still by the law in which we're made. Whether or not we consider ourselves to be creative, most of us are seeking to make a life that is worth living, one that is compelling and capacious, with space to flourish for ourselves and those we love. Whatever our situation and setting, a family, a school, a team, a job, a piece of land, our impulse is to make it better. And when that desire decays, When our sense of possibility shrinks, when imagination withers, something has gone wrong. 
We often need artists and writers, poets and musicians, gardeners and beekeepers to reawaken our creativity. To help us with this, our feature conversation on this episode is with Andrew Peterson. Peterson is a singer-songwriter, an author, and a keeper of 80,000 bees at the Warren, the piece of land in Nashville where he lives. He is the founder of The Rabbit Room, a ministry dedicated to fostering spiritual formation and Christ-centered community through story, art, and music. He has released over a dozen albums, written the fantasy adventurer series The Wingfeather Saga, and more recently, two books, Adorning the Dark and his newly released The God of the Garden. We hope you enjoy our conversation with Andrew Peterson. So I'm joined now by singer-songwriter, novelist, beekeeper, Andrew Peterson. Uh, thanks so much for joining us on the In All Things podcast. Glad to be here. Thanks. So most will know you for your music. I've been listening since Carried Along, 2000. Uh, or perhaps wow. younger listeners, uh, like my kids, will know you for your young adult Wingfeather saga. You're also the author of two works of nonfiction, which reflect on the creative process of making. And your newest book, uh, which is right here in front of me, is God of the Garden. And so I wonder if you could tell us a bit about this new book, and especially how does it relate to the last book you wrote, Adorning the Dark? I wrote down the subtitle for the first one was Community, Calling, and the Mystery of Making. And this one is Creation, Culture, and Kingdom. Yeah, so the, this book was born, uh, I, it owes its existence to uh, 2020 COVID lockdown. Uh, the fact that I was on the road I, for 25 years or so, I've been touring pretty consistently. And um, in the last 15 years, I think I have come to, uh, my homesickness has just ramped up pretty sharply um, because we, about 15 years ago, we moved to a little piece of property in Nashville and uh, which led to, you know, beekeeping and learning to take care of the land. And uh, that part of the reason we live there is because of, uh, me stumbling upon a book called Jaber Crow by Wendell Berry, which was a game changer for me. And um, I don't know, after living a life that was pretty unrooted, always looking around the corner for like where I belonged, trying to figure out where home is. Um, And I'm still that way, to be honest, even though we've been in this in Nashville for 20 some odd years and at the Warren, which is what we call our property for 15, I still have this weird wanderlust, you know, when I, when I go places, I'm always kind of going, Oh, is this, is this where I'm, where I belong? You know? And so I've got in, in me this kind of tension between really, uh, feeling homesick for the actual place where I live, uh, along with a homesickness for some place that I have never been. Right. And, uh, and I think a lot of us probably feel some measure of that. And so I wrote adorning the dark a few years ago as a, um, a memoir about the creative process um, to try to explore a little bit of what is going on sometimes in real time inside the brain of somebody who's trying to write a song or a story or whatever. And, and uh, to try to get down some thoughts um, about what creativity means and what it looks like to live that out. And after I had written Adorning the Dark, I turned it into my editor and his one comment or one, one of the, well, he had lots of comments. <laughs> I don't want to make it sound like my first draft was perfect. But one of the main things he said was, hey, it's weird that you wrote this whole book about the creative process, but you left out your property. You didn't write about where you live and like your family and how, you know, where you live has affected 
uh, what you do. And I was like, whoa, that's weird. It just didn't cross my mind. And so I ended up writing a chapter for Adorning the Dark, um, and I can't remember the title of it right now, but uh, it kind of described how we ended up where we ended up and um, some of the lessons that I had learned and what it was like for my kids to grow up there. And it was about this garden plan, this 30-year garden plan that a friend of ours gave us as a gift. And um, and what a helpful thing it was to, to uh, especially in a season of dep- depression, to have something to work on. And so fast forward a year or two, COVID hits. Um, I get booted off the road and uh, found myself at home in March of 2020. Um, with just this long runway of at least a year of not traveling, no shows. And it was weird. It was like, at first I was really scared because it's, you know, it's been my livelihood for a really long time. And I called my manager. I was like, Hey, are we going to be okay? And she was like, actually, no, you're, you're going to be okay. Because guess what? You don't have any expenses. You're not paying for a tour bus or a band or whatever. So we were able, thank the Lord to, to kind of hunker down and ride it out. And I, it was one of the best years of my whole life. Mm. Like, uh, and I say that carefully because I know that it was really hard for a lot of people and hard for us in, in ways too. Um, but I was talking to a musician friend of mine about it and uh, I said, hey, how has 2020 been for you? And without even a pause, he said, best year of my life. And I was like, yeah, I kind of feel that way too, but I feel guilty. And he was like, why do you feel guilty? And I was like, well, because a lot of people have been suffering. And he goes, he goes, I'm a musician. I've been suffering for 20 years. <laughs> so it was kind of a funny, uh, funny answer. And it kind of freed me up to feel thankful and to just be like, you know what? I, I could, I think my, the best posture right now is just to be glad that I'm home. So all that to say, um, it was the first time in 25 years that I got to see every day of spring come to Nashville and live out every day of summer and the gardening and the beekeeping that happened there and, and then fall and the whole thing. I was just, I was enamored with it. I, I, it was like a, a great gift. And so in the middle of that, my same editor said, Hey, you want to write a follow-up to adorning the dark? And I said, sure. Without knowing what that would be. Mm. And, uh, and when I started writing it, I still didn't know what it would be. I just knew that I, I wanted to pay attention to place. And I thought if people resonated with that chapter in adorning the dark, maybe I'll just dig a little deeper. Yeah. It's interesting. You know, you say that you use the word rooted and it's almost like COVID required you to be rooted and to look at the roots of the place where you mm-hmm. were. And you also write very early in the book that this is a book about trees, which I <laughs> love that. Um, and I wonder, you know, without taking the whole rest of the time, what is it about trees that yeah. has so captivated your imagination? And how does your love of trees connect with the themes of the book? Yeah, it was, it was weird. I was a little bashful about it. I still am, to be honest. Like, it feels crazy to... Uh, like, who am I to write about trees? I'm not an arborist, you know, but I have always loved them. And the more I thought about it, I, I realized that I have a lot of memories that are anchored by certain trees, not just trees in general, but a, a tree in a yard. And I started asking my friends like, Hey, do you, do you have any trees that you remember from childhood? And everybody had a story. Everybody, you know, sometimes people would be like, no, nah, I don't think so. And then five minutes later, it'd be like, there was this tree at my grandma's house. And it, it intrigued me because it, it intrigued me. Did you hear that? That was terrible. Anyway, I, I, I started asking myself what would happen if I framed the book around this idea of trees that I remember. And as I was beginning to think about that, and, and you know, I had been reading a lot about trees without really realizing it. I just looked at my book stack and it was like, wow, I'm reading a lot about trees and place and taking care of creation, that kind of stuff. And uh, so it was, it was all in the wheelhouse. But then I stumbled upon the Bible Project 
podcast series on trees, and it just lit me up. I was so excited about it and moved by it. That, that there is a theological component, um, that there's a lot that we can learn about the story of creation by looking at trees specifically. And so that just unlocked something in me, and I started writing. Mm. I wonder if you'd be willing to read a favorite passage of the book for us. Yeah, I, I could read a, a little bit of the intro, which sets the stage a little bit. It, the way I think of it is that um, the book isn't necessarily about trees. It's about the presence of God, I think. But trees were the, the framework. It was almost like the book was me nailing two by fours into the trunks of trees so that I could climb up into them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I'll just read the, a few paragraphs at the beginning. This is a story about place. It's fitting then that the whole of this book was written in one place, Surrounded by the same walls, the same smells, the same creaks and quirks and comforts. Because of my job, I've done a lot of traveling, so most of my songs and stories were written in all manner of places. Coffee houses, church fellowship halls, green rooms, airplanes, park benches, and recording studios. I've spent much of the last 25 years on the move. Due to COVID-19, early 2020 had me literally and figuratively grounded in a way that allowed me, forced me, to work in place. Slowly, rhythmically, without the frantic pace to which I had grown accustomed. I had to exercise my imagination, casting thoughts far and wide, thoughts creeping like ivy beyond the confines of this place to other places in the distant past and the distant future, traveling not on an airplane or in a tour bus, but in the pages of books and the memories kept by photographs. Several weeks into the spring lockdown, as Jamie and I drifted off to sleep, I realized that I had spent more consecutive nights in my own bed than I had in more than 20 years. I was so happy. Yes, there were financial concerns. Yes, there was a simmering anxiety brought on by that awful virus. Yes, death and tragedy seemed to be ripping the world apart at the seams. Yes, there were things we wanted to do but couldn't. But I had never, since 1997, when we moved to Nashville, been home with my bride for every day of spring. I had never witnessed from home the way Lent blossomed into Easter, nor had I ever been present for each heady day of high summer or its withering into the blaze of autumn. Certain birds came to the feeder at certain times. On walks to the lower pasture, I came to expect the white flash of rabbits bounding into the brush in certain places. Among the many deer that passed through, one orphaned fawn hung around for weeks, brazenly grazing the patch of corn just beyond our car. I learned to spot box turtles standing frozen in the weeds and eyeing me with their severe yellow irises near the seasonal stream. The field of wildflowers lured butterflies and goldfinches. The bees provided 50 pounds of honey. The pear tree produced at last exactly one edible pear. We got bowl after bowl of blueberries, raspberries, strawberries harvested on dewy mornings as the sun crested the hill. The chickens provided eggs, the raised beds provided kale and onions and cucumbers, and the cottage garden out front, with someone to tend it on a daily basis, exploded with firework displays of tulips, hyacinths, foxgloves, yarrow, coneflowers, delphiniums, catmint, russian sage, hollyhocks, geraniums, lupins, and asters. The whole of the property seemed to enjoy being cared for by this amateur gardener tromping about. It responded favorably to me and I to it. In short, I had never been so intimately connected to place, to this place we call the Warren, utterly unique in all the wide world. Mm, Thank you so much. Yeah. Two questions maybe even coming out of that passage. And the first one is, 
How does your work with your hands, work in the garden, connect to your work with words? How do you see those enterprises of creativity as informing each other? Yeah, uh, I think that a lot of people, so I'll tell you this, my, my sister-in-law is an author and she's great. And one of the bits of advice she gives to young students, sometimes she teaches, uh, teaches writing, is, is that if you want to be a writer, don't go to school to study writing necessarily. Maybe go to school to study something else entirely and then go do something crazy. Because uh, if you don't have a life worth writing about, you'll, you won't really have much to draw from. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. I know that for me, I wanted to be a songwriter, and I happened to go to this little Christian college and studied the Bible for four years. <laughs> and it turns out that if, that if you want to be a songwriter or a novelist, I think the Bible's a great thing, place to start. Um, it's the source of so much goodness and beauty and, and uh, good storytelling. And so it was like, you kind of have to come at it sideways a little bit, you know? And so um, I found that if I have this assignment, go into your office and write songs, I suddenly want to do everything but write <laughs> songs. Um, and so having things in your life that, that uh, get your hands dirty and engage you with the given world, um, that's, that's like the best source to draw from. Um, it's not just sitting around and thinking deep thoughts, like those deep thoughts need some soil to be planted in. And that's like the, the life, you know? And so beekeeping is a good example. Like I, I stumbled into beekeeping because <laughs> I had dinner with, uh, at a friend's house and the guy sitting next to me was a beekeeper. And we started talking and a couple of weeks later, I had ordered my first package of bees. And, uh, and so I had no idea what I was doing. And that was 10 ish years ago. And, and I still call the guy with questions. Like there is no bottom to what you can learn about how to do this, you know? And so that's the thing is like, if you put things in your life that require discipline and engagement with creation and uh, that, that also leads you toward community and also to worship. I think that uh, as a Christian, you know, there's a lot going on in my mind when I'm tending to the bees other than the mechanics of beekeeping. There's a lot of uh, astonishment and wonder and thanksgiving that, that I experience because I, I know who to, who to thank for it, you know? So I, I, I recommend to everybody who uh, is any kind of cerebral work, make sure that you have something that gets you out of your head and gets your hands dirty. The other thing that passes th that you read, you mentioned the chapter house, your yeah. writing cabin. And uh, it's a really funny moment in the book where you talk about how most of what you had written before you had the chapter house was composed, I think, between midnight and 4 a.m. in your living room. And it made me think of, I guess this question is about the material conditions of creativity and how having a place like the chapter house versus writing in a coffee shop, um, you know, artists create in less than ideal conditions all the time. And yet part of the creative impulse is the desire for a more spacious place, one that can nourish our creativity. And so I wonder if you could say more about what you notice about creativity under scarcity hmm. and abundance. Yeah, that's that's a good question. It's funny because the, it's a dream come true to have a little riding hut, as they call them in England, I think. But what I, the, the irony to me is, as thankful as I am, and, and I don't think there's ever been a day that I've walked into that room and closed the door behind me and I haven't like breathed a sigh and kind of said, thank you, Lord, for this place. It's so, it's just a all of my favorite things, material things are crammed into this little building. And so the interesting thing is that I have found that it is no easier to write with a, with a writing hut than it was with that. It's maybe a little more, you know, there, there are some comforts that are there, but the actual writing is no easier. It is, uh, the, if, if you wait for the conditions to be perfect, then you'll, you'll never write. 
Um, and I remember Anne Lamott, I was at this thing that I did with her and, and she said something like, she was talking to a room full of writers and she said, the best thing you guys can do to, to, to write the book that you started is to stop not writing it. Do you remember me? I, I said yeah, something about that in the yeah, book yeah. and I just laughed I, when she said that. I was like, that's exactly it. You just stop not doing it. And it just comes down to the will. You just have to decide one day, I, I'm going to do this. And so for me, it was crazy because I was still doing music and on tour and I would have book deadlines and edits that were due and you know, I would be on the tour bus um, while the rest of the guy, band was like playing racquetball in the church gym or whatever, f- trying to finish chapter 57 in some book, you know, um, because I just had to decide I'm just going to do this. And, you know, w- with the Wingfeather books, it, it became extremely urgent because there were a bunch of readers who had read the first three books and they wanted to know what was going to happen. So you feel this like terror and urgency. Like I have to do this. It's not going to do it on its own. So whether you got a chapter house or not, it's just like, I was just going to say, it's really nice. It's a, it's a huge privilege to have a space to work, but it's also not a requirement. One of the more moving parts of the book for me and a passage that brought those unlooked for tears was when you talk about being in Florida and the story of childhood in Illinois is characterized by innocence and wonder, but then Florida is like the fall. It's the mm-hmm. loss of innocence. And this leads you to reflect um, just on this human struggle that we have. And you process it through the lens of being a parent and the way that we struggle as parents to shield our children from the pain of the world. And you write, I have tried to protect all three of my children, however falteringly, from the grief that hovers on the horizon of their lives like a gathering storm. But there's nothing for it. They're going to wound and get wounded. And it was really poignant for me because I was, when I read this, sitting on a plane to Washington, D.C., and my wife and I were trying to decide whether we take our 13 and 11-year-old to the Holocaust Museum. Mm. You know, so how long do you allow them? I mean, they know what the Holocaust is. They know what happened. But to be immersed in that experience and to really, you know, come to terms with just how broken the world is. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, everything about the yearling that you write about in, in the book was just really, you know, mm. brought tears to my eyes. And so I wonder if you could say more about living with this knowledge and helping others to live in it. Uh, how do we stay vulnerable uh, instead of hardening our hearts and putting up our shields? Um, I don't know. Uh, I just know that it's important. Um, like, it's uh, a good question. I also, when you mentioned the Holocaust Museum, I, I went straight there in my mind. We, we went there as a family too. And I, I remember weeping and, uh, it was hard to decide whether and how much of that for our kids to see. And they were about the same age as your kids uh, when we were there. Did you take them? We yeah, did. We did. Yeah. And you, carefully. I thought they did a good job of making it so that there were certain things that you couldn't see if you were under a certain height, you know. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it threw me into a tailspin. I remember it was really difficult. But I think the uh, the thing that I, the, where my mind went as you were talking was the fact that as a storyteller, it has been... It was important to me that like with the wing feather books, and I think this is true for the most part of the way our kids grew up, was that they they understood that it wasn't just the world that was broken, that it was us that were broken too, you know? And, you know, the G.K. Chesterton quote where somebody asked him what's wrong with the world and he replied, I am, uh, is there's a lot of wisdom in that. Um, and I think there's a shift from the kind of fairy tales that our kids read when they're young, where it's... You know, they need. It's good for them to read stories where they see what true heroism is, or like what re, what goodness with a capital G looks like. 
but eventually it it doesn't do them any favors to shield them from the fact that guess what mom and dad are also really messed up in many ways <laughs> you know i'll have to ask my kids counselors when they're 30 or whatever how we did with that but i do think that we tried to make it plain to them that that we need christ that there is there is like i said like it said there's nothing for it we're just going to hurt and get get hurt and that christ is our only hope for healing and so as long as you frame it like that then um i think it gives you the the freedom and the courage to wade into the darkness and i mean responsibly i don't think it's smart to show kids everything and say well the world screwed up but i do think that it is important that they understand that it's it's in us and it's outside of us both and you know to keep talking gk chesterton there's this quote that neil gaiman actually refined that said you know fairy tales don't teach children that dragons exist they teach children that dragons can be beaten and uh and i think that as long as you know as a christian i believe that there is something stronger than the holocaust there's a goodness that is that is stronger than that and uh and i want to plant my children in that garden um but part of the planting involves um a real acknowledgement of of how messed up things are you know yeah god of the garden your new book has a much more somber tone in parts than adorning the dark and you share some of the darker moments in your journey and you tell the stories behind some of your songs like the silence of god and it strikes me that music written by Christians, uh, as you know, has often been criticized as resolving too quickly, uh, pretending that the world has not fallen, uh, rushing through the brokenness to get to the resolution. Now, I remember one of your writing principles from Adorning the Dark was something like, give them two plus two, not four. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet you also said in God of the Garden that the thesis of every concert you've played is Jesus is God and he loves you. So how do you navigate as a writer whether that's for your songs, which is much shorter time domain, mm-hmm. or for your, your, your novels, which is a longer time domain, the tension between fall and redemption. Mm-hmm. How do you make sure not to rush through that too quickly? Yeah. Um, well, I don't really know how to articulate it. I, I know that the, the presence, I say this in, in the new book, that the presence of, de- of pain is a part, the, the presence of the question is a part of the answer. Right, that the fact that we feel that there's a wrongness implies that there ought to be a rightness, you know, and so it's okay, like like to to let the pain linger, um, and you know, even if the thesis of the show is Jesus is God and He loves you, it doesn't mean that I come out and say that every time, you know. Um, I'm trying to trying to do a, a less overt, uh, less direct work than that. Sometimes um, it depends on the context, obviously. But the way that a friend of mine put it, um, we were talking about that tension between Christian art being more or less overt, you know, and she said something like the wing feather, she was talking about the wing feather books. I don't want to make it sound like I'm tooting my own horn, but she said, they're not overtly Christian. They're deeply Christian. And so I think that it's a good thing for there to be art that is deeply Christian. That isn't overt. that gives people the two plus two, not the four, you know, um, and so the example that popped into my head was Tenebrae. I don't know if you grew up in a tradition that had a Tenebrae service, but Tenebrae is a service that um, happens um, in our church. It was like the Wednesday of Holy Week. So it's before Maundy Thursday. It's before Good Friday. It's just a time in, during Holy Week when we acknowledge and lament the brokenness of the world. And it kind of sets your heart up for um, Easter, you know, 
Um, and it's hard, man. Like Holy Week is tough, especially if you're fasting through Holy Week, where you're really feeling uh, this thing. In in our tradition, that on Palm Sunday, there's this dramatization of the crucifixion scene where the people on stage and the people in the audience actually like rehearse the story. Somebody's reading the Bible and the audience gets to be the mob and we all yell, crucify him. And I've never, I've never done it when it didn't cause tears to come. Um, you feel like, wow, I'm embodying, you know, my part in the crucifixion of Jesus here. Um, and it hurts. You know, it hurts when you do it. And the, the service ends every year with, were you there when they crucified my Lord? And we walk out of Palm Sunday and into Holy Week thinking, here we go. This is going to get, <laughs> this is going to get heavy. So tenebrae, which is a Latin word that means a darkening, is this service that I've been to different versions of it. But the one that I love is the one where after each scripture reading or poem or song, a candle gets blown out and it ends in darkness. And we just kind of have to sit in it. And I don't know that um, we're always terribly good at that. As Christians, just kind of sitting in it and grieving the darkness, um, thinking about it for a few days. But man, I will. It makes Easter morning all the more potent uh, when you when you really get a little sliver of a taste of the cost of the crucifixion. So yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that gets to your question exactly, but I think that's the thing. Is like you can do that and still let the thesis be Jesus is God and He loves you. That the the darkness is a part of that story. Do you ever have moments in songwriting or I mean, maybe you do or writing your novels where you think, I'm not sure how to write my way out of this. You know, the darkness is so dark that you're not sure where the, the mm-hmm. light's going to come from. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's true. And, and a lot of times those songs end up never seeing the light of day, you know, or they're a part of a larger work. Because the truth is, you know, with all the talk about sitting in the darkness and being willing to confront it, like... The, the Christian story doesn't end there. You know what I mean? So I think we have a responsibility to, to articulate the not the, the, and yet, you know? And I think I talk about that in adorning the dark, that the Vav imperative that Michael Card taught me, which is you can lament, you can spout off all of your complaints. You can really, really grieve. And then I think we do have some responsibility, even if it's just the tiniest glimmer of, and yet the darkness is so great. And yet um, I, I will praise you. Um, I will I will cling to the belief that the author of the story is good. Yeah, is that process different for the songs versus the longer works, or for your non your nonfiction? How do you, how do you hmm. creatively how, how does that process work itself out differently? I mean, certainly you have to just show up and and write for right. all all of the different genres. But how is that process of resolving or coming to resolution different for the different yeah. areas you work in? I don't know that it's terribly different because like with the songs, um, you know, there is, I tend to think of my songs as um, vignettes of a larger work. Like each, each record kind of tends to have a theme that I, I love, I love an album that holds together, you know, that you can play the whole thing and it takes you on a little bit of a story arc. Um, so yeah, there are some songs that are only a, like a section of the story that don't resolve. God rested is that way at the end of um, resurrection letters, prologue, um, an unresolved chord as we enter into Holy Saturday. So um, that that is a uh, a device that that I think is kind of cool. It geeks me out from a songwriting standpoint. I think the big difference is with um, part of the art of songwriting is that you have three minutes to to get there. 
to get in and get out. <laughs> and I love that about songwriting. I like my favorite songs, not that I've written, but the ones that I listen to, I'm just, I marvel at their ability to, to move the furniture in someone's heart. in that short of an amount of time, a book is a whole different thing. Like you can spend a year writing a book and then find out that you've been barking up the wrong tree <laughs> the whole time. Um, but with the song you can figure out pretty quickly if it's effective, if it does what you were hoping it would do um, or more. So yeah, I don't know the, the process is, there, there are a lot of similarities, but um, probably more differences. That's interesting. It strikes me. I mean, the sort of main genre that I work in is sermons as a person who preaches regularly. And there's this similar kind of time domain of, you know, you have 25 minutes yeah. and you are going to say basically the same thing at the end that, you know, you're going to bring them to, to the cross and to Christ. Yeah. And, and yet you have to tell it slant, you know, you're, yeah. you're trying, you're trying to do something that maybe that's the only sermon somebody hears, you know, mm -hmm. and, uh, and the struggle to know exactly how do you do that right. Is, oh man, is really I tough. don't know how preachers do it. <laughs> like I can't imagine agreeing to, to write like a new song every week <laughs> and then to, to play it for my community. Yeah. People who, you know, like when I do a concert, if I have a bad night, I'm leaving town and I probably don't have to face them, <laughs> but you know, you got to be around your congregation, your congregation for you know, years yes. and they probably give you passive aggressive comments on your sermons every <laughs> week. Yeah. Uh, but I admire it a lot, but it's just like songwriting. There's so much similarity between novel writing and songwriting and sermon writing in that way. Um, like the, the most, you've probably like landed on some that you were like, wow, that worked better than that's better than I can do. Yeah. Uh, at which point you realize that the Holy spirit was at work in the writing process. And, um, and then you also probably have the thing where you really thought you just m made a giant mess and then you get all these comments afterwards, you know? Um, so there are these constant reminders that the point is not you. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, that's a huge part of the songwriting process is that, what I want people to think about when the song is over is not me. I want them to think about their own story and ultimately to, to land at the God of their story, you know? So here at Dort, I teach a class on aesthetics. So beauty and imagination and the arts uh, are some of the topics we cover. And I find that one of the things that at least half the students will come in saying is I'm not creative. Mm. Um, and I think what they mean is that they're not skilled in the fine arts, you know, that they're not, musician or writer or um, painter or something like that. But it strikes me that if you ask a kindergarten class, who here is an artist that every yeah. single, <laughs> single kindergarten is going to raise their hand. Uh -huh. um, and so why do you think that creative impulse gets diminished as we get older? And how do you reinvigorate creative imagination, especially for non-specialists, you know, people who don't see themselves as working with the arts? You've obviously written a couple of books here um, that are not just for people who are you know, offering something to the world in terms of their vocation, but that are offering something to the world in terms of, you know, what they do yeah. every day. So how do you talk about creativity or how can nourishing the creative imagination help those who don't consider themselves to be artists? Well, I think it's a, it's a matter of broadening their idea of what the word creative means. I think we are all inherently imaginative creatures and uh, that's part of the image of God in us. And, you know, the difference between imagination and creativity, a lot of times we use those interchangeably, but there's a, there's a difference. Imagination um, is being able to see something that isn't there or that ought to be there or to see something that is there, but has been obscured and use your imagination to, to call it out. Creativity is the hard work of incarnating it. Right. Um, and so I'm speaking as a person who has, you know, lived his whole life in, in some measure in the creative 
arts. So it's it's easier for me to say, oh, everybody's creative. You know, I'm I'm sure you feel a little less creative if you if you work as an accountant or you're you have an office job or whatever it may be. Um, but that doesn't like you know who you are and what you were made to do. It doesn't. Um, change depending on how you make your money. I don't think a whole lot that I guess what I'm saying is that it doesn't let let you off the hook. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? You're building a kingdom every day. Like we are, my theory is that we're all kingdom builders. And um, if you are a Christian, then the work is to build God's kingdom. But up until that point, you've been building stuff, but you don't know what it's for, or you've been building your own little compound in in the world, <laughs> whatever that looks like. And so figuring out what it means to add to the beauty of that kingdom is is the thing. And that can happen no matter what you're doing. So creativity, you know, my friend Jonathan Rogers says, you know, if creativity is a pie, then the arts only make up a small slice of that pie. And he says, not, not even a very important one. <laughs> mm. <laughs> that homemaking and cooking, uh, those are all ways of telling a better story than the world is telling. Mm. So the way Jonathan puts it is that a meal at McDonald's tells you one story of what food is for. A home-cooked meal at Thanksgiving tells you another story about what food is for. So I think the trick is for everybody, no matter what they are, figure out what is the better story and how, how do I tell a better story? Because there are two versions of it. Mm. In, That's really helpful. Yeah. I wonder if you could share with us, in both of these books, you share practices and starting points for nourishing the creative imagination and for building a creative life, a life that's beautiful and resonant with the gospel. Uh, where would you have people start if they're saying, yes, I want to sign up for that. I want to live a life that's characterized by imagination and creativity, whether I'm sure. an artist or not. What are some of the practices and um, starting points that you would give to people? Um, I think I would ask, like, what, what is it that lights you up? What makes you excited? Like in some people, it's Marvel movies. <laughs> some people, it's uh, poetry, whatever it may be. And just like set yourself free of any expectation to master it and be one of those kids in kindergarten and play. Like remember how to play again. I think that's a big part of it. One of the, I have a friend uh, who's a pastor who pointed out to me that there's a, there's a playfulness about Jesus after the resurrection. I don't know if you ever, I had never thought of it, but he said after the resurrection, Jesus is, is moving around in a new creation way and he's walking through walls and he's appearing and he's saying, Hey, Hey guys, how's it going? I'm hungry. Anybody got anything to eat? You, you get this real sense that he's just like almost childlike in his joy, um, that he's got this resurrected body now and he's like kicked down the door for us. And uh, he wants us to play. So a little bit of joyful play would be part of it. It doesn't have to be a slog, you know? So that's part of it. But another thing is like, don't, you don't have to do much. Like just, so for example, I have a friend who um, is struggling with some depression kind of issues. And, uh, and I invited him out to the house um, a couple of weeks ago and I had bought a bag of um, bluebells bulbs and it's bulb planting season. And, uh, and I was, we, we went out into the, a little spot on our property and we planted bluebells together as a way of allowing him to embody hope. Like, I know that you think you feel like this is going on forever, but we're going to do something. We're putting these in the ground and they're going to disappear and God's going to do an invisible work. And in April, we're going to come out here and we're going to look at these purple blooms that have come out of the ground. And so that's a very simple thing. You know, it took us 10 minutes to go out into the yard and do that, but we have kind of like vouchsafed a little bit of hope and expectation into the, into the soil of the ground, literally. Um, and 
in so doing, I think we're allowing God's creation to preach a little sermon to us. So it's little things like that. I don't think you have to, like some people are like, but I don't have a garden. Well, you can, you can go to the, you know, Home Depot or whatever and buy a pot, put it on the window, like have something alive in every room, learn to take care of something. And, and I think it, there's a lot of like scientific evidence that, you know, in prisons and in mental health places that growing things changes us. It really does. So, uh, you know, not everybody has to be a gardener or a songwriter or a painter, but my hunch is if you follow your whim and the things that light you up, that you'll find little ways to push back. What would be some songs of yours that would pair well with God of the Garden? I mean, there's oh. the ones you talk about in yeah. the book, but are there yeah. other songs that you say, that song pair, that's what I was trying to say, yeah. even though I wrote it, you know, before. Uh, the, the song that is the most, um, isn't in the book, but it's called The Sower's Song. Um, a lot of the God of uh, the Burning Edge of Dawn and uh, Light for the Lost Boy and Resurrection Letters, they all kind of deal with it. There's a song called Remember Me on Resurrection Letters that is my favorite song to sing because I didn't write it. My friend Ben Shive wrote it, but there's a verse in the song that paints this picture of the new creation of Jesus at his resurrection. It says, the sun will stand on the mount again with an army of angels at his command, and the earth will split like the hull of a seed wherever Jesus plants his feet. And up from the earth, the dead will rise like spring trees, robed in petals of white, singing the song of the radiant bride. And we will always be with the Lord. And um, when I sing that song, I, it's such an evocative lyric, like the picture of Jesus walking through the new creation and every, everywhere he steps, it's like the hull of a seed breaking open. And I just, it takes my breath away. It just makes me want to see him uh, so badly. Uh, but I, I think also that same song has the, the line, the trees, the hills remember green again, that here in the Midwest, you guys know spring <laughs> in a way that people in the South don't. Like I, I, in Florida, it's kind of always spring, you know, it's always green, but you guys get this real glimpse of uh, the return. You know, it's almost like spring is the answer to a prayer that winter has been praying and don't miss it. Just pay attention to it, you know? I love that in when COVID first hit, you know, everybody was on lockdown. I, I think you may have heard me talk about this, but I, it cracked me up that one of the biggest Google searches was why are the birds so loud? <laughs> <laughs> like people really thought that the birds got louder because everybody was still. Yeah. The birds were no louder. It was just that everybody was paying more attention. So maybe that is the better answer to your question about how to start. Start by paying attention. Our guest has been Andrew Peterson, singer, songwriter, novelist, beekeeper. Andrew, it's been such a pleasure having you today. Thank you very much, Justin. Thanks for listening to the In All Things podcast from the Andreas Center at Dort University. Original music is provided by The Ruralist, and thanks are in order to Ruth Clark, Shannon Vischer, Vaughn Donahue, and the production team at the Andreas Center. You can find us online at inallthings.org or follow us on Twitter under the name at in underscore all underscore things. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever podcasts are found. And if you find our content beneficial, please help us out by leaving a review and sharing with others. Thanks for tuning in.